1: The following podcast contains explicit language. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. We could make deals in Russia very easily if we wanted to. I just don't want to because I think that would be a conflict.
0: I have a no-conflict-of-interest provision as president, and that's something that Nazi Germany would have done and did do. I think it's a disgrace. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Trumpcast is the show about the isolationist, interventionist man who sides with Bannon, Kushner, Bannon, Kushner, Bannon, Kushner, Kushner, my sister, my daughter, my sister, my daughter. My sister, my daughter. I said I want the truth. Need
1: my sister and my daughter.
0: Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. In the world of Trumptown, there are many mysteries. Who can understand Trump-Russia, for instance, and why does Trump swerve like a drunk driver out of isolationism and into his bleeding-heart intervention in Syria? In that Kushner-Bannon showdown, why can't Trump pick a lane? And of course, what motivates Sean Spicer to slag off Hitler as the lesser light to Assad and say Hitler just wasn't up to snuff as a devoted exterminationist and user of chemical weapons? It's all, as Churchill said of Russia, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. But none of that is what mystifies me most. At the center of this drama is the biggest and most confusing feature in all of existence. Men. What are men? Why do they do the things they do? Why can't a man be more like a woman? We're going to get to all that in a minute with the perfect guest, Frank Bruni, the op-ed columnist at The New York Times. First, a few announcements. The Trumpcast Book Club is coming up in a few weeks. Be sure to get your hands on a copy of Herman Melville's The Confidence Man and read up. Join Jacob Weisberg for a discussion later this month. Also, Trumpcast will be having a live show at Tribeca Film Festival on April 30th at 8.15 p.m. Invite your family, invite your friends, invite co-workers. Tickets are available at slate.com slash live.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
0: Here to get manly with me is my friend Frank Bruni. He's of course the op-ed columnist for the New York Times and he's written about politics for an eternity, but also about food, gay rights and pop culture. Frank, just as Milton in Paradise Lost explained the ways of God to man, can you explain the ways of man to woman?
1: I've never thought of myself as a prime interpreter of manliness, I must say, but um but I'm, I'm, here for you. I'm here for you, Virginia. I, I think, uh, no, I, I love this topic because Trump, I think, sees himself as Uberman, you know, as just the, the, sort of, the sort of most manly man ever. And yet this is a guy who, um, by all evidence, froths and swirls his hair. And I don't know if you, uh, if you just saw this, but he was recounting the uh, evening when he ordered the uh, airstrikes against Syria. And he was recounting being at Mar-a-Lago. You know, he always gets the product placement in there. He was recounting being there with the Chinese president and felt compelled to share the detail that they had just eaten the most beautiful slice of chocolate cake, um, wow. which the Twitter sphere is going crazy with right now. But <laughs> He's this weird combination of classic, like, um, atavistic, yesteryear versions of masculinity, you know, constant bragging, cock of the walk, chest puffed out, you know, um, bragging about your endowments, be they financial or other. And yet he's someone who is a germaphobe, who we've talked about his hair, who's constantly appearing in public with those, you know, telltale crescent moons of white below his eyes, which anyone who's ever, not that I'm saying I've ever done that, but anyone who's ever, you know, use a tanning bed and put on the goggles, we know what that's about. So you could argue, and I think actually Maureen Dow did uh, during the the primaries or during the general election, that in the classic man-woman binary, Hillary hit more of the masculine notes than he did, and he hits more of the feminine
0: ones. You know, it is amazing that, you know, when you think about Kerry, wasn't there some speculation that he might, God forbid, either have had a little cosmetic surgery or maybe, you know, darkened his hair a bit? And at that time, it just was, you know, you gasped. And now we have, yeah, someone coated in both a, you know, tanning bed tan and and what really looks to me like heavy makeup. You know, how does he, well, okay, you said cock of the walk, right? Um, There's no other meaning to cock other than a rooster. Right, right. But one interesting thing about roosters, right, is that they're sort of, they, um, they're the pretty ones in the group and I know from pickup artist writing, don't know why I read about pickup artists, but the kind of ultimate coxman, the ultimate swain is meant to, you know, dress up, is meant to, you know, in some cases wear eyeliner, get tattooed, or, you know, that that's the thing attractive to women somehow. Is that part of the Trump package?
1: Well, sure. He's a creature of guilt, you know, and whether that mm. guilt is what's on himself or whether it's what's on his buildings, I... I, just a couple weeks ago for the first time, and, and I really do mean this for sort of political, anthropological reasons, um, had a long lunch at his hotel in D.C. I was down in D.C. In fact, I was spending some time there on the weekend. My, <clears throat> my partner and I were with Maureen Dowd, his friend, and we did a couple museums, and then we thought, well, we should have lunch at the Trump Hotel. And, um, you know, it is just all marble, all gold trim. It is exactly, you know, the, the, the architectural analog Um, for what he does with his own person. And I I think you're right. I think it's that sort of animal world. If I show enough plumage, and if the plumage is brilliant enough... It will it will advertise me as larger than life to the world, and it will attract mates. Um, in this case, mates could be voters. It's, it's whoever whoever he needs to kind of keep the business or the grift going.
0: You know, before Trump, we might have said. I mean, I guess it's um, let's say le- <laughs> leaving some Italians out of it. That Putin was the big preener and the vain the vain one. We'd seen him shirtless on horseback. If I understand your column, that Putin vision is closer to a vision of masculinity than, than the Trump one when it comes to the people you interviewed and talked to about when they feel most male. You know, I was interested that that, that for a lot of them it was the natural world. Is that your yes, experience? Yes, very much.
1: the Yeah. No, I, I just kind of, I mean, it wasn't a scientific survey, but I thought it was interesting. I asked, I, I sent an email to one Uh, Straight friend, um, who is a writer and someone who kind of is reflective. I wanted people who were going to reflect for a second. And one to a gay man, Um, although like you know, as we would say, fairly butch gay man or whatever. I hate those words, but um, just I didn't tell them what I was doing. I said, I said, when do you feel most manly? Now, part of the problem is that adjective, manly. You know. But, but I didn't know how else to ask it. I mean, if I, think, I think I would have gotten the same answer if I'd said, when do you feel the most masculine? And both of them, you know, talked about kind of sweaty, athletic moments, which is, as you say, it's, it's, you know, Putin shirtless on horseback. I think Donald Trump, whom I could never imagine shirtless on horseback, and God forbid, I don't want to see it. I think that is, however, his image of his perfect self. I think that's a lot of what draws to Putin. But it's also that sort of unabashed, unapologetic use and exercise of power whether it's political power in in Putin's case, whether it's the privileges of wealth in Donald Trump's case, I think a certain generation and a certain kind of man sees that as quintessentially manly.
0: I'll step back a second to say, you know, in the wondering about whether Trump will ever go to Camp David, I wrote a little bit about Camp David during the election, wondering what a Hillary Camp David might look like. Sadly, we'll never know. But, you know, Trump hasn't been there once. It's a place filled with screen doors and mosquitoes and horseshoes and... These mid-century preoccupations of men that you know really wanted something rustic, truly rustic, like splinters, right. Right. and uh, and Trump doesn't seem to want to have anything to do with that true natural landscape.
1: No, he, do- he doesn't. And I also think this, this has a great deal to do with pampering. I mean, I, I really mm. think, and this isn't a joke, I think probably the thread count at Camp David is not high enough. Remember, <laughs> Trump would, and much was written about this, and then he actually a couple of times pushed back by doing what pe- writers were noticing he was never doing. Much was written during the campaign about the fact that, you know, way more often than not, almost all the time, no matter the hour, no matter the jet fuel, no matter the carbon footprint, whatever, he would fly from the last campaign event of the day in his private plane, back to one of his true homes so that he could sleep in the comfort and splendor of his own bedroom. And it was a, you can go back and look at it, it was a big news story when, I think it was just a couple days before voting in the Iowa caucuses, to push back at this observation, he actually spent one or two nights in like a Holiday Inn Express in far eastern Iowa. Right before the caucuses, Um, because that was so extraordinary. But you mentioned something I thought that was fascinating before Virginia about John Kerry and how he had to deal with and got a lot of um, derision for maybe being too much of a pretty boy. This is one of those classic things where, you're, where if you're in the Democrat, if you're the Democrat, you fall into a certain trap that if you're the Republican, you don't, right? So mm. the Democratic Party's image, I'm, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but the thing it battles, the character, is that it's the soft party. Mm. It's the feminine party. So the Democratic standard bearer who maybe pays a little bit more attention, the man, to his hair or whatever, or maybe wears a little makeup, he is going to be dinged for that in a way that the GOP strongman is not, because the Republicans are the daddy party, and they're not playing to caricature.
0: Got it. Okay, yeah, that that, that adds up. I mean, the, the, the classic gore trying to switch to earth tones to bring his maleness back, um, and so he didn't look so prim.
1: I'm re- Remembering something else as we're talking about this, and I I mentioned this, I wrote about this, uh, I can't remember whether I wrote about it in real time when I was covering George W. Bush, but it definitely was in my book. He was obsessed with his belief that Al Gore dyed his hair. Ah. Um, And he used to say, uh, sometimes, this is only in the early days of, of his campaign when he was being a little less cautious and when there weren't many of us on the plane, he would occasionally say the man dyes his hair, what does that tell you about him? Mm. And when he would walk away, like none of us really kind of wanted to be baited into that, but when he would walk away we would all think, well, you know, he, like every Republican in the modern era, is campaigning, you know, saying, I'm carrying the Reagan mantle, and uh, Reagan's hair was not, in his final years, the color God intended it to be <laughs> at that moment. But this notion that, like, people are really quick to go after Democratic politicians for any supposedly female traits or vanities, whereas Republicans can give in to those traits and vanities and somehow uh, get off scot-free.
0: There is also, we haven't heard, heard much about it, partly because, you know, maybe there have been some other important stories that have come out since then, but we haven't heard much about his inability to walk upstairs and his general um, fragility. Sometimes I think, honestly, I want to see Trump, minus the makeup and the tanning, with just his hair the way it really is, just for a second, just a second, not as meanness, but just to say, like, Maybe he, you know, he's like this kind of broken old man underneath there. Uh, you know, I, I don't know.
1: Well, no, I, I, your point is well taken. We know less about his health. I mean, to, to, to mm. kind of, to now, now to get a little bit kind of like, you know, newspaper classic wonky about it. But we really do know less about his health. It's a perfect, perfect parallel with his taxes Um, than we do about a lot of other presidents. And there were a lot of people who vied to be presidents who've had to remember how much health, health, health information John McCain felt compelled to release. And you're right. If you look at his age... If you look at his lifestyle habits, which do not, he almost proudly talks about how little exercise he gets. If you look at how little sleep he gets, you know, if you look at all of that, and if you really kind of watch him move over time, not just baby steps, you know, to and from a lectern, um, he is not, to all appearances, or as best we can tell, um, a spectacularly fit man or a spectacularly healthy one. I have no reason to believe that he is actually frail or anything like that, but he's hardly this kind of strapping, virile, you know, great stamina person. And, uh, I mean, I think he's been saved somewhat, if you're kind of doing a health profile, by the fact that uh, he has, by all reports, and no one's ever doubted this, pretty much not touched alcohol or ever touched alcohol Mm -hmm. in his life. There's been no no serious allegation of any sort of recreational drug use or anything like that. His diet, on the other hand, um, is proudly full of fast food. So there's that as well to to give one, um, you know, kind of pause and questions about just what kind of health he's in.
0: So so let's talk about some of the other men in the administration um, and, and maybe their relations to each other. The showdown between Kushner and between Jared Kushner and Steve Bannon has gotten a lot of attention lately. They seem like men on at least two sides of a spectrum. Jared Kushner, under the hashtag Jared at war has prompted a whole bunch of jokes about his dan dandy-ishness. My favorite is that his the movie about him at war should be called Saving Private Equity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that one. That's pretty great. It's, it's a goodie. Um but what uh so what do you think about those two together um as as just a a male collision?
1: Well you know I mean each of them departs from any sort of uh, generic masculine ideal in any number of ways Uh, I'm not sure it's their divergences as men as so much as, I mean, in terms of of classically masculine traits, but I think their divergence in appearance is something that could be relevant to this quote-unquote showdown that nobody's talking about. If you, very recently, there was a fascinating story in the Times by my colleague Glenn Thrush um, that had some sort of memos that went back and forth that showed how Paul Manafort was was pitching himself to Trump and how Trump was responding to it. This is back for that brief period of time when Paul Manafort was the campaign manager um, for the Trump campaign. And in one of those uh, bits of writing that came to the surface, Trump was saying how impressed he was that Paul Manafort looked so well put together and looked younger than his years.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, and Paul
1: Manafort, again, isn't Putin shirtless on horseback. He's more in the dandyish wing of things. And then if you remember back when Trump was uh, auditioning various people for and thinking about various people for Secretary of State, he said to several aides, and it was reported, that he liked the way Mitt Romney looked, that Mitt Romney looked the part. Well, if you look at Mitt Romney or Paul Manafort, they are Jared Kushner in 25 hmm. to 30 years.
0: Mm-hmm. In,
1: the, in the Kushner-Bannon wars, everything we know about Trump's incredibly superficial obsession with appearances. How many points is Steve Bannon being docked for the way he dresses and the way he looks? I mean, he redefines rumpled. You know, if you were doing an illustrated dictionary next to rumpled, there would be a picture of Steve Bannon. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, (laughs) Cargo pants. When
1: Trump looks at his son-in-law, and when he looks at, at Steve Bannon, the person who fits Trump's ideal for what a composed, successful able person looks like. That's Jared Kushner. And that may not be the main factor here, but I guarantee you that's a factor.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, that is definitely the thing that that stands out about the distinction between them. I mean, no one can help but comment on, yeah, Bannon's uh, cargo pants and slovenliness and also his uh, capillaries and, and, you know, evidence. Well, isn't
1: there a whole Twitter account, Steve Bannon's nose? <laughs> I think that's right. I'm pretty sure there is. I, I have not gone there and looked at it, but someone told me that. And someone wrote, I wish I remember who it was, because I want to give that person credit, that Steve Bannon looks like he's wearing everything in his closet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like, right. When Diane When Diane Keaton pioneered the layered look in Annie Hall, I don't think she was looking forward decades to seeing Steve Bannon do some sort of male-rumpled version of it.
0: You know, I will say, though, that Bannon does have something that Trump might admire, which is an even envy, which is with Bannon, what you see is what you get. And what's what's interesting about Trump is his absolute commitment to artifice. Trump seems to let us see things like like the tape on his tie or the, you know, lines of the makeup or the that, you know, reveal him as a as a fraud, you know, that that he's hiding
1: I mean, I I am guessing that Trump wears his tie so long that he needs to tape it because he feels that makes him look thinner. Remember when our mothers always told us to wear vertical stripes? Yes, I do. <laughs> right, well, my mother told me that a million times and thank God for her. Um, you know, I think the tie is a version of that and in order to make it that long, it needs the tape. The stuff we see behind his makeup and his hair, well, that's because he needs the makeup and the hair work to uh, to conceal his age. I think where where Bannon probably speaks to Trump more than Kushner does, Um, and I, by the way, I think Kushner is winning and is going to win this war, um, is in Bannon's truculence, you know, Mm. um, sort of F you to the world. Um, He has decided, he he likes to go into battle, he likes to see the world in terms of allies and enemies, and he believes that it is a sign of strength, and I would submit a sign of manliness, to go into battle, to go after your enemies, to turn everything into a fight. Um, And that Up until recently or up until now has been Trump's political style. I think one of the things we're watching right now is whether, you know, under the influence of certain people, Jared, among them, he's realizing that there might be a benefit in changing that style. But Trump, you know, he goes after his enemies on Twitter in a blistering way. He goes after his enemies in debates in a blistering way. He believes that's a sign of manliness and strength. Um, A lot of us look at it and believe it's a sign of brattiness and bullying.
0: So, um, I guess when I was in graduate school, and this might not be so popular say now, I would think that what's interesting in all these people we're talking about is the absence of uh, women and the, dare I say it, homosocial relations among these men. And none of these men, um, except Kushner, appear with women. We talk about the Kushner-Bannon relationship or the, you know, S- Spicer-Hitler-Assad trio or Trump-Putin. I mean, there's none of that Reagan, you know, standing with Nancy or Clinton saying two for one with Hillary. What What is this? I mean, do you recognize this from fraternity life, from just men obsessed with each other and who's friends with each other. and.
1: You know, I don't, I'm the wrong person to ask. I wasn't in a fraternity. I have always had as many or more female friends as male friends. I do recognize, just from looking at the world around me, how many men are so much more comfortable in all-male enclaves and all-male societies. And the, the weird thing about this particular administration is, whereas I believe that impulse... Probably existed in in many of Trump's predecessors, and there were people who said that Obama really preferred, you know, with his pickup basketball games and that sort of stuff, you know, that his tropism was toward other men. Hmm. Um, but what, but modern politics has schooled politician after politician, administration after administration, in the fact that that is not an acceptable way to govern. It's not an ideal way to govern. I. I don't mean this in a kumbaya way, but I really do uh, ascribe to the belief that, you know, diversity produces better decisions. You get different viewpoints. You get, you know, um, and, and most people have absorbed that lesson, diversity along several lines, including gender lines. But again, what you have here in, in Trump's political identity in his world is this um, defiance of anything that smacks of expectation or political correctness. So what you see is a bunch of guys reverting to the kind of behavior that probably a lot of other guys would if they weren't being correctly corrected by a society that knows better and is teaching people better?
0: Yeah, I right. I stand. I'm undomesticated. You know. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I mean,
1: and uh, you know, I mean, and there, there is one woman. So, and you know, you brought up Nancy Reagan, Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, uh, that's a whole separate issue, which is, and, I, and by the way, I, I don't I don't falter for this. I don't think she owes us anything. But, you know, we really do have a singular situation here where we have a First Lady who has decided not to be First Lady. Mm. Um, and, you, and you and I are talking several days before Easter, and we're actually reading stories about whether they're going to be able to pull off the Easter egg roll. <laughs> and, and it's partly because of understaffing in the administration, with, which is its whole other problem and really big story, but it's also partly because... Because one of the titular figures in this, the symbolic figures in all of this, is, has sort of taken a pass, which is Melania. Um, we hear about one woman, really, with any sort of gravity in the Trump administration, and that's Ivanka. And that's fascinating because what she has had to do in her life and who she has become physically as a human being to be the kind of woman whom Trump might respect you know or 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 who in her eyes her father wants to be around i mean that's an entire drama of its own
0: do you think that um any of this we have to admit armchair sort of anthropology about these men but who have given plenty uh, given us plenty of reason to speculate about it do you think any of this has predictive power you know if we're trying to figure out say the triangulation you know between trump and bannon and and kushner or his relationship with putin You know, the desperate effort to prove he's not a puppet, which was articulated by one of Trump's sons. I mean, do you think that we could guess if there's danger to peace and prosperity or, you know, if there's any hope based on this, you know, fractious group of bros?
1: You know, I I don't know. I can't predict anything. I think I think the one thing that we have always somewhat known but have had confirmed for us in the last several days, the last week. Is that Trump is a work in progress? I mean, he's a really wet piece of clay, <laughs> um, and he is going to end up governing um, in a way that is much more reflective of changing circumstances and of his changing stock. Amid those changing circumstances, um, he will turn on a dime he will turn on a philosophy. I mean, it, much was made in the first days about, wow, he's governing exactly as he campaigned. Um, in fact, no. I mean, he, he campaigned as a sort of anti-Wall Street populist and he's filled his administration with, you know, with the sages of Wall Street. Yeah. Um, he came up with a, with an Obamacare repeal and replace, quote unquote, um, that did precisely what he promised not to, which was it was going to remove, you know, tens of millions of people from coverage. Trump, is singularly unbound by his promises. And that will become even more true if Bannon ends up being exiled. And I think that makes predictions when it comes to the Trump presidency truly, truly a fool's work. The only thing I think we can predict is that at no point in this presidency and at no point in his life will Donald Trump revert to being a classically dignified <laughs> civil human being. We are going to, through the course of this, of this presidency, have absolutely batshit crazy tweets, you know, that we never saw coming. We are going to have him striking poses and saying things in public that we never before would have deemed presidential. And one of the many things I worry about, including what the impact of his presidency will be on the, on the country, is in the aftermath of Trump, you know, those qualities, that sort of bearing that we called presidential, that really has a value that's more than hokey, is that on the wane, or is that out the window because of the kind of President Trump has been? And
0: this is fascinating. Thank, I, my takeaway is, I must say, for all the men I love, is uh, batshit crazy for our president, <laughs> i got to say. <laughs> We're allowed to say that on the air here, um, and I'm glad you did. Thank you so much, Frank.
1: Thank you, Virginia. It's totally a pleasure to talk to you.
0: That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon in Trumptown. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer at Panoply. And I'm Virginia Heffernan.
1: I'm old. Politicians, ugly buildings, and whores all get
0: respectable if they last long enough. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.